Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Crime Family. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Conrad Roy case, also known as the texting suicide case. Now, I just want to have a little bit of a disclaimer that the following case does include topics such as suicide and self-harm. So we do understand it could be triggering and upsetting for some listeners. So listener discretion is advised. This case does involve everything from a Romeo and Juliet type romance to suicide and some very troubling text messages. So with that being said, let's get started. So this is the Conrad Roy case, and I just wanted to know, do either of you guys know anything about this case at all? I had heard a little bit when it first was happening, but other than that, I don't really know any details. Yeah, same. I only know like a little bit when I first heard about it, but I haven't followed it at all, so I don't really know what happens. All right, so... Like I said, this was also known as the texting suicide case, and it occurred in July of 2014. We have 18-year-old Conrad and 17-year-old Michelle Carter. Now, on the surface, Conrad's life seemed to be going pretty well, and it seemed like he had it all. He was very smart. He was on the honor roll in his senior year of high school, and he had been accepted with a full scholarship to a university that he had actually decided not to attend in the fall. Instead, he was going to go work with his family's tugboat business um, and he had just gotten his captain's license after doing months of night classes so that was where his true passion lied so instead of going and taking the full scholarship he was just going to go and work for his family but he was very very smart and he was also athletic so he you know ran track he was on the rowing team and he also played baseball so he kind of on the surface like it seemed like he was the all-american kid but actually in internally he was suffering with massive depression and uh, suicidal thoughts. So for years, this had been a battle that he was struggling with, and he didn't really tell a lot of people. Um, At first, he was suffering in silence. In the summer of 2014, he was texting a lot with Michelle Carter. Now, Michelle's life was also similar to Conrad's in that she, on the surface, seemed like the All-American girl. She was also athletic. She was on a few sports teams at her high school. She was also voted most likely to brighten your day in her senior year. So, and she was just very friendly and very bubbly and people just remember her being that very positive person. Um, But also her past was very checkered as well. She had an eating disorder from a very young age and she had actually had a couple of suicide attempts in her early teenage years. So her and Conrad were very similar in that way in that they were outwardly very successful and had a lot going for them, but internally very, very troubled. So the two of them had actually met in the summer of 2012 
and the two of them actually lived about an hour away from each other in Massachusetts, but they didn't meet until they were both in Florida. So Conrad was in Florida visiting his other family members, and Michelle was also in Florida at the same time. And an HBO documentary called I Love You, Now Die is a really good documentary, and in that they kind of explain how they came to meet each other, and it was through Conrad's, the great aunts that he was there to visit. Um, she had actually known both of them uh, for some time. They were His family was, of course, related to her, so they kind of met that way, and in the summer of 2012, they hit it off. They immediately, they hung out a lot, and they would mostly text, uh, text and call each other and stuff, and While they were both there in Florida, they became really, really close. And early on, Conrad had disclosed to her, you know, what he was struggling with and that he had a lot of suicidal thoughts. And they kind of bonded really, really quickly over that. It was very early on, uh, shortly after they met, that Conrad first told her that he wanted to die and he was having suicidal thoughts. And at the time, her initial reaction to that was, you know, pretty normal, like what you would expect when someone tells you that she was very very troubled by that and she was trying to talk him out of it and she was always trying to motivate him and just you know keep him moving past this very hard time in his life and she was kind of his mentor through this time and when you track their conversations um she does sort of start to take a turn from that attitude towards a much more darker attitude and Conrad's family, from what I understand, didn't really know a ton about Michelle. They knew that the two of them had met um, in Florida. And like I said, they only lived an hour apart from each other in Massachusetts, but they really didn't meet up with each other very much at all or see each other in person. The vast majority of their relationship was via text messages, emails, and phone calls. So I think Conrad's family knew of her. Um, They knew that he was texting with her a lot, but again, they had never really seen her much. Throughout the two years that they were texting, like I said, Michelle's attitude towards what Conrad was disclosing to her really did change. And there were some text messages that even had her, you know, suggesting the various ways in which he could kill himself. So, you know, there's some messages where she's saying, you could drink bleach, stab yourself, jump off a building. Um, So she's kind of giving him ideas and it becomes very apparent that she she's changed from being the helping supportive loved one to just being the one who's going to allow this to happen um, in some way. So June 29th, which was two weeks before Conrad's death, is kind of where it really begins and starts to escalate. And on that date, leading up to July 13th, there's a lot of exchanges between Michelle and Conrad, which are very similar to where she's suggesting ways that he can kill himself and it's very very apparent that um where this is heading and he even mentions to her once about how um he says you could be my juliet and speaking about romeo and juliet of course um and for those of you who don't know uh, romeo and juliet they both commit suicide at the end of that play but um at first michelle is like yes i would love to be your juliet and then i think when she realizes what he's inferring as if like they both killed themselves then she kind of backs away and she's like no that's not happening i won't be your juliet but instead of her also killing herself she instead decides that she's just going to help him do so um i actually have the transcript of the text messages between michelle and conrad on the day on july 12th and katie i've sent you the transcript so for this you will be michelle and i will be conrad and we're just gonna go through 
the the transcript of the messages from that day. It's like a six-page transcript, so it's quite long, but it's all important to the case. So we're going to do that now. Okay, so it starts with Michelle. It's okay. Why haven't you done it yet, though? I'm too messed up, too. What are you talking about? My head. You can't think about it. You just have to do it. You said you were going to do it. Like, I don't get why you aren't. I don't get it either. I don't know. So I guess you aren't going to do it then. All this for nothing. I'm just confused, like you were so ready and determined. I'm going to eventually. I really don't know what I'm waiting for, but I have everything lined up. No, you're not, Conrad. Last night was it. You kept pushing it off and you say you'll do it, but you never do. It's always going to be that way if you don't take action. You're just making it harder on yourself by pushing it off. You just have to do it. Do you want to do it now? If you don't do it now, you're never going to do it. And you can say you'll do it tomorrow, but you probably won't. And this is about five hours later. Are you going to do it today? Yes. Like in the daytime? Should I? Yeah, it's less suspicious. You won't think about it as much, and you'll get it over with instead of waiting until the night. Yeah, then I will. Like where? Like I could go in any enclosed area. Go in your truck and drive in a parking lot somewhere, to a park or something. Do it now, like early. Didn't we say this was suspicious? No, I think night is more suspicious. A kid sitting in his car, just turn on the radio and do it. It won't be suspicious, and it won't take long. Like, why am I so hesitant lately? Like, two weeks ago, I was willing to try everything, and now I'm worse, really bad, and I'm... LOL, not following following through. It's eating me inside. You're so hesitant because you keep overthinking it and pushing it off. You just need to do it, Conrad. The more you push it off, the more it will eat at you. You're ready and prepared. All you have to do is turn the generator on, and you'll be free and happy. No more pushing it off. No more waiting. You're right. If you want it as bad as you say you do, it's time to do it today. Yep, no more waiting. Okay, I'm serious. Like, you can't even wait till tonight. You have to do it when you get home from your walk. Thank you. And then there's a little break in the texts. I don't know, I'm freaking out again. I'm overthinking. I thought you wanted to this time. The time is right and you're ready. You just need to do it. You can't keep living this way. You just need to do it like you did last time and not think about it and just do it, babe. You can't keep doing this every day. I do want to, but like I'm freaking out for my family, I guess. I don't know. I told you, I'll take care of them. Everyone will take care of them to make sure they won't be alone and people will help them get through it. We talked about this. They will be okay and accept it. People who commit suicide don't think this much. They just do it. I know, I know, lol. Thinking just drives me more crazy. Exactly. You just need to do it, Conrad, or I'm going to get you help. You can't keep doing this every day. Okay, I'm going to do it today. Do you promise? Where do I go? And you can't break a promise and just go in a quiet parking lot or something. Okay. Go somewhere you know you won't get caught. You can find a place. I know you can. Are you doing it now? Still have no clue. Not finding a place to go isn't an excuse. I know where to go. Where? And this is like 45 minutes later. When I get home, I'm going to do it. Okay, promise? I'm going kayaking anyways. Haha, you love kayaking. Yep, something I wish we could have done. Make sure you take your son kayaking. Haha, of course I will.
So should I keep it in the back seat? Or front? In front, you could write on a piece of paper and tape it on saying carbon monoxide or something if you're scared. I was thinking that, but someone might see it before it actually happens. Well, wait, the generator is going to be on because you'll be passed out so they'll know you use carbon poisoning. And then she corrects herself and says, dead. It's not loud, is it? Not really. Okay, good. Are you going to do it now? Okay, okay, I got this. Yes, you do. I believe in you. Did you delete the messages? Yes, but you're going to keep messaging me. I will until you turn on the generator. And then about 50 minutes later. Are you going to do it now? I just don't know how to leave them, you know? Say you're going to the store or something. Like I want them to know I love them. They know. That's one thing they definitely know. You're overthinking. I know I'm overthinking. I've been overthinking for a while now. I know. You just have to do it like you said. Are you going to do it now? I haven't left yet. Haha. <laughs> Why? Leaving now. Okay, you can do this. Okay, I'm almost there. Okay. And then about three hours later. Please answer me. I'm scared. Are you okay? I love you. Please answer. You're at your dad's. Camden told me. I'll get you help soon, I guess. So that evening, Conrad parked his truck in the back of the parking lot of the Kmart and sadly commits suicide by placing a portable gas generator in the back seat of his truck and closing all of the windows. In about 20 minutes, the carbon monoxide from the engine was enough to kill him. And later that night, his family became worried when he didn't return. And so they did do a search party. They informed the police. And it was a short time later when his truck and his body were found and shortly after to the family's horror. So immediately it was very clear that it was a suicide and the case seemed pretty open and shut. And it only took about 20 minutes for the carbon monoxide to kill him from the start when he turned it on and from when uh, he eventually died. Um, so it's very, very sad. Did you guys have any thoughts about like the transcript and the, the back and forth between him and Michelle on that day? Um, yeah, I thought it was very ominous. I just don't know how someone can just write these texts and force somebody to kill themselves. It just seems so, so sad and tragic. Yeah, I mean, she's obviously so convinced on getting him to do this. And, like, he's obviously hesitant. So if she could have just said, like, you know, let's get help. Um, doesn't have to be like this. Then it definitely could have maybe, you know, turned things around. Yeah, it's, it's so sad. And clearly from those texts, you can see that she is, you know, coaxing him, repeating to him, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? It's like almost and shaming him when he seems to be backing out on it and he, is not sure what he wants to do and she's making him feel really bad about it which obviously is terrible you know she's berating him for not killing himself on that day it's like she got so fed up that he was kind of just saying he was going to do it over and over again it was like for her own reasons she just wanted him to finally do it so it's really really sad um about an hour after his death um through text message records um michelle actually texts conrad's sister asking where he is so immediately it's like she knows where he is she was talking to him so she's immediately trying to cover up her her tracks and she was actually on the phone with him so those text messages were obviously right before it happened and then you know they were on the phone with each other um at about 6 28 p.m they're on the phone for 43 minutes and then at 7 12 p.m she calls him and they're on the phone for another 47 minutes 
and during this time is when he turns on the the generator he's in the truck and it starts to work and then he gets out of the truck because he's really really scared and he's telling her that he's scared he doesn't want to go back in and she coaxes him and tells him to get back into the truck eventually he does and that's when he finally goes back in closes all the doors and windows and then it's the 20 minutes after that uh, where he dies so this will be a key piece of the trial because he did the action of getting out of the truck and it was her words and what she was telling him that made him get back into the truck so and like i said she was immediately texting his family after the fact she also texts her best friend sam at around this time as well and she tells her friend that conrad did commit suicide and also in that same conversation she does mention that if the police were to look at her text message history that she would be in a lot of trouble so she is acknowledging that she knows that what she's done is very bad because she's articulating that to her friend on the night of she also says to her friend uh, sam in that same conversation that she heard a motor running which would have been the the generator in his truck Um, and she also said she heard some moaning like someone was in pain and she said she stayed on the line with him for 20 minutes when he wasn't really saying much just kind of moaning and he wasn't saying anything and she stayed on the line and waited until she basically heard him take his last breath really 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 sad um and of course the family was all horrified and just so sad and i mean he had so much potential he was only 18 and you know he had a whole life ahead of him and then all of a sudden you know this happens and obviously i think they knew a little bit of what he was struggling with but they didn't know obviously the severity of it um, or else they would have gotten him some help but the one person that could have helped him in that moment was michelle and she was also the one that failed him so bad at that time after he's found dead and you know during doing all the funeral arrangements and everything michelle becomes really close with the family so when she starts coming around a lot texting them emailing them a lot it really raises a lot of red flags um in one of her text messages to conrad's sister shortly after he dies she says you tried your hardest i tried my hardest everyone tried their hardest to save him she also attends the funeral and she's also visits the family home a lot and there's an interview um on 2020 there was an episode on the case and they actually interview conrad's aunt and in that interview uh, conrad's aunt says that she was asking to go through conrad's belongings in his room and she wanted to take some of his belongings she also wanted some of his ashes so for them for this for this girl to be requesting all of this stuff and acting like she was so so close to him when they really didn't know much about her was very odd behavior Uh, he died in july and then in the months after that Michelle started organizing a baseball game. Um, It was called Homers for Conrad because he was a baseball player. She just wanted to do this charity baseball tournament that would raise money for mental health. And in one of the exchanges that she had with one of Conrad's family members, um, he was concerned because she was actually organizing it to take place in her hometown in Plainville. It was about an hour away from Conrad's hometown. And his family was expressing concern because they were wondering why she would have planned it an hour away from all of his family, all of his friends. And her response was that she didn't know how to organize an event that was in a different town than she was in. And she said that because she was the one organizing it, it had to be in her hometown so she could be the one to put up the posters and to promote it to people she knew. Um, And right away, the family was kind of like thinking that she was trying to make it all about herself. Because if it was really in Conrad's honor, they thought that they would have it in his hometown so that all of his friends and family could easily attend instead of having them travel an hour away. The police officer that was the one that found the 
the truck and his body. Um, like I said, they said it, it seemed like it was a pretty open shut case. It was a suicide, but it was the, actually that police officer's idea to check his his cell phone records, to check his laptop. And actually, shortly after his death, they did find um, a journal that had some suicide notes that he had written to his family. It also had the password to his cell phone and his his laptop. So when they do check this, this is when it really takes a dark turn from just a straightforward suicide case to something much more sinister. That's when they find all of the text exchanges between Michelle and Conrad on that day and for the months and months leading up to that day. This is when Michelle becomes a person of interest and they do actually interview her shortly after this. And when they're interviewing her, she does admit that she was talking to Conrad on that night, but just says that he suddenly stopped messaging her. She didn't really think anything of it. It's happened before. And that was kind of it. Obviously, she didn't. She wasn't upfront at that time about what she was really doing that night um, that he died. But at this time that they interviewed her, they had actually already had a warrant uh, to take her cell phone. So they do tell her this in the interview. And her main concern, she asks, when is she going to get it back? That's her main concern. I think she's very worried at this point that it's taking a turn and they're going to find something on that cell phone. Because she did mention to her friend Sam that if they were to look at her text messages, that it would be very bad for her, which is exactly what happened. Eventually, after they do all of this, they do the investigation. She is arrested in February of 2015, and she is charged with involuntary manslaughter. One of the reasons I wanted to do this case was because it is very unique, and there weren't a lot of cases that were like it um, at the time. It was kind of the first of its kind because it started the whole debate of she's not actually there at the time that he's dying but she's texting him she's like coaxing him to go through with it she doesn't alert anyone she doesn't do anything to help and her her negligence is what caused his death which is the argument of the prosecution and massachusetts is one of only 11 states that does not have a statute about encouraging suicide and of course this is happening in massachusetts so that's another legal challenge that they're facing and so this was kind of a a really high profile case at the time and it was known as the texting suicide case because it started the debate of can your words kill can merely just what you're saying in that moment be the thing that kills someone versus actually being there and physically doing it yourself she is charged with involuntary manslaughter and the the trial actually goes on for quite a long time and her defense uh, attorneys get right to work and trying to craft some sort of defense that would get her off the hbo documentary does a really good job in following the legal proceedings um, one episode, they cover the prosecution's argument, and then the other episode, they cover the defense's argument. And her appeals attorney actually says a really interesting quote and makes a really good point that I wanted to get, to get your guys' opinion on. So her attorney basically makes the argument that if there's two people on a, on a bridge, one person is standing at the edge of the bridge, it's going to jump off, and the other person who's with them says, jump off the bridge or I'll push you. They're saying that would be over the line, but if you don't threaten them with the I will push you, it wouldn't be over the line. And he's arguing that Michelle never once threatened him and said that if you don't do this, I'm going to do this to you. So the absence of that threat is what makes her not guilty. What do you guys think of that? Uh, BS. I think that's ridiculous. She's the one who was coercing him to do, to kill himself. She was the one who's saying all this stuff to him, all these text messages. Like he wanted to back out, but he kept saying, or she kept saying, no, like, you have to do this like like what's stopping you type thing i just think it that whole statement that you said but the defense is just ridiculous yeah so i don't agree with that either i mean i feel like 
if you have these thoughts in your head and somebody's encouraging you, they don't have to like threaten you with something else if they're, you know, really talking you into this. So I feel as though she doesn't need that threat of I'm going to hurt you if you don't. It's just the whole convincing and supporting him in it that is enough for me. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, the crux of the the whole case is the fact that he got out of the truck and it was her coercing him and convincing him to get back in. And, you know, the prosecution is arguing that had she not been there in that moment to coerce him to get back in, he would have probably gotten out of his own volition because that's what he did initially. And they're saying that because she was there saying that, that is what makes her guilty. Um, so it's just kind of, you know, the back and forth of both arguments and there is a lot of um, different points that the defense tries to bring up. So Conrad was actually taking a drug called Selexa. That was the brand name. The drug was a uh, citalopram. And he started taking this in June of 2014, which was a, about a month before he died. And the defense tried to argue that one of the side effects of that drug includes increased suicidal ideation. So they're trying to say that because he was taking these drugs, it increased his suicidal thoughts, and therefore it was a natural progression that it probably would have happened because of the drugs that he was taking. This was eventually dismissed because it was seen as not relevant. Also, Michelle, at the time of Conrad's death, she was also taking Prozac, and she had actually recently had tried committing suicide herself. There's a psychiatrist in the HBO documentary that they do interview named Dr. Bregan, and he makes the claim, and he is saying that they were actually not star-crossed lovers, they were drug-crossed lovers because they were both taking these drugs and it caused, you know, they're so young too, 17 and 18, and these drugs, they have lots of side effects and it was kind of just a deadly concoction and they were both not in their right minds, basically, is what the argument that he's trying to make. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Um, I don't agree with that. I feel like it's, I mean, it's disturbing to hear that she listened to him die, like literally him moaning in the truck and she just stayed on the line. She like, I mean, that was another chance for her to call for help and she never did. So yeah, I just think she had multiple chances regardless of what she was feeling at that time. She had other, other chances at different times. So I just feel like, yeah, that's not going to hold up. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I don't think any of what they're saying is going to, yeah, it's not going to hold up in court and I don't, like Katie said, like she had so many opportunities to like bail out of the situation and go get help and try to save his friend, but instead she just decided to sit there and listen to him die. And I feel like she's just at fault, or like I don't know. I just feel like none of what they can say is gonna make it okay for what she did, whether she had a drug problem or she was suicidal. She still had the chance to get away and do something about it, but she never did. Yeah, and actually in the, like a year or two prior to Conrad's suicide, he had actually tried committing suicide and he tried to take an overdose of acetaminophen and he was actually talking to another friend at the time and that friend alerted the authorities to call 911 and that effectively saved his life. So that's a very different situation, obviously. That friend did the right thing and got him help immediately and it saved him. And Michelle was the one, she was being there and she was obviously not doing that and it resulted in his very, very early death. Another thing um, in the HBO documentary that was very interesting was they talk a lot about um, Michelle's interest in the show Glee. Now, it seems like a weird thing to introduce to the case, but it is very, very interesting because um, I don't know if you guys have watched that show. I haven't really watched much of it, really, but I do know. So the two main stars of that show, their characters, Finn 
and Rachel were dating in the show. They were like the main couple of that show. And the actors in real life, Leah Michelle and Corey Monteith, were also dating. Michelle was really was in love with um, Leah Michelle. She like loved her music. She was always tweeting things like about wanting to meet Leah Michelle, and she was just a really big fan of Glee. So as most people know, unfortunately, in July of 2013, the actor Corey Monteith was found dead in his Vancouver hotel room from an accidental drug overdose. And this, of course, affected the show. Like at the time, Leah Michelle and Corey Monteith were, you know, like the Hollywood couple. So later in the fall, in about October, the show Glee, they did a tribute episode to Corey Monteith. They explained in the documentary, it's very interesting because it's kind of like a meta episode because you have like the characters in the show that are reacting to the character Finn's untimely death. And you also have at the same time the actors also mourning the loss of their best friend who was on the show with them. Actually, the Corey Monteith's death on July 13th, 2013 was exactly one year before Conrad's death. And the documentary tries to make the argument that it was almost as if Michelle was so enamored with this like fairy tale of the show that she loved so much and Leah Michelle. And it was almost like she was trying to create the same situation in her own life. So she kind of crossed fantasy with reality and she wanted to be in a way, the mourning girlfriend who had lost her, who had lost her boyfriend at such a young age. And when she was doing the fundraiser, the homers for Conrad baseball tournament, and she was posting a lot on social media saying she missed him so much. It was almost like she was trying to take on that role um, that her favorite actress, Leah Michelle was also facing at the same time of losing her boyfriend. And she was now like the grieving girlfriend who just lost her boyfriend. And she was so, so devastated by it. Um, and she also, a week before Conrad's death, had also went to go see the movie The Fault in Our Stars, which I've actually never seen that movie, but they say there's a scene very similar to Conrad's suicide that is also in that movie, and that was a week before his death. So it's almost like she was trying to create this narrative for herself in her own life that kind of mirrored her favorite TV shows and movies. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? Uh, yeah, um, I did watch The Fault in Our Stars, and yeah, there's a part in the movie where... Um, one of the friends does commit suicide and it's actually pretty accurate to what you were just describing. Um, and going back to like her fantasizing about the Glee character, I don't really think that will stand up in, like up in court. Like I don't, I'm guess she can fantasize and be like infatuated and like obsessed with like, like an actor. I just don't think how that relates. I don't know why that would be even part of the evidence or part of their defense. I don't think it was actually, it wasn't really part of the evidence, but it was, this was in the documentary. It was like a journal, it was a journalist. He was, they were interviewing a journalist who was reporting about the case and he was talking a lot about that. So it wasn't anything that they really presented in trial, but it is interesting. I think he's trying to just say that like, she also had some mental health issues and they were thinking that maybe she was trying to recraft this narrative in her own life. Maybe. Yeah. I just think that like, she was so torn up inside herself that like it's hard to see what how she was feeling at the time like I don't really have any sympathy for what she did but she was suffering herself so it's just hard to put yourself in that situation and it's hard it's hard too because it's like obviously she has some mental health concerns of her own so it's like you have to take that into consideration but also you know she did do this horrible thing and that doesn't necessarily absolve her of all guilt in the situation, but it is something that you have to consider to some degree. 
yeah the, the more i like listen the more it seems like she you know was kind of making it all about herself like this happened to me like my friend did this and and i don't think thinking about she was trying to you know mimic what was happening in that show is like too far off even i mean you hear things all the time where people you know they rob a bank and they try to do the exact same thing that was in a movie or they plot a murder and it's actually super similar to a movie that they saw so i don't think it's really that far off to think that she had this in her head even if it was like subconscious that she was trying to like make this a part of her life as well yeah and like she was so young too right she's 17 and we all know you know teenagers can be so fascinated with like their favorite tv show or their favorite movie or like these hollywood celebrities that they just look up to so much so it's obviously it's not that far-fetched like you said to think that she could have been doing this and also i was just thinking of this now but it's so eerie to me that conrad committed suicide in exactly one year after Kari monteith was found dead and i was thinking like she knew everything about glee she knew everything about that show do you think it's possible that she was so adamant that he'd do it that day because she wanted it to be some sort of one year anniversary thing of cory monteith's death like do you think that's a possibility because she was so adamant oh yeah i never i never really thought of that like yeah that's really interesting um maybe maybe she wanted to be like the infamous girlfriends who boyfriend died and a certain day of her full celebrity crush i don't know but that is very interesting yeah, and I agree that she definitely could have been thinking about that the whole time, and that's why she was very pushy about it on that day in particular. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and even after uh, Conrad had died, she was still texting him, saying, I wish you were here. Uh, she was still trying to have that some sort of connection to him. She was tweeting a lot, you know, saying that she missed him so much, and she was tweeting so much about the baseball tournament that she was planning for him. So it was very much like she was the, the devastated girlfriend whose boyfriend died so soon. Um, it is just eerily similar to like that whole situation with like with Corey Monteith and that. So it is just an interesting thing to add, even though it's not something that really came up so much in the actual trial, but it's just something that that documentary brought up that I wanted to discuss because it is kind of an interesting um, addition. So during the trial, um, there's actually a video of Conrad that surfaces. So he had filmed a video of himself just talking about how he was feeling and um, the struggles that he was going through with his depression and how he felt um, about wanting to kill himself and everything like that. Um, so we're actually going to play you a portion of that video. Um, and just another disclaimer, it is it might be uh, triggering uh, or hard to hear, so uh, just listener discretion is, is advised, but we're going to play that for you now. Hi. This is Conrad Henry Roy III, reporting to you about what's going on through my mind, what's going on through my head the last few days. So it all started off just, I'm trying to do too much to better myself in so little time, like studying vocabulary words, trying to relate TV shows, movies, sports figures, cars, like, I don't know, Twitter phenomenon, like real life situation, not real life situations, like current event situation, like current events, or what's going on in the media. And that's what people like to talk about. People generally like to talk about things that are going on. In the media, 
and what I am doing is I'm looking at myself so negatively looking at myself minuscule little particle the face of this earth it's no good trash will never be successful never have a wife never have kids never never learn but I have a lot to offer someone I'm introverted nice and caring that's some benefits I'm a nice kid but it's, it comes to a point where I'm just too nice. So, as I said, she was charged with involuntary manslaughter. And during the trial proceedings, they eventually did her lawyer and her agreed to go with just a judge instead of a jury. They decided to forego the jury they didn't want those 12 jurors to come to any agreement or come to any decision on a verdict they just thought they'd put it all on the judge and like i said because this case was so unique there wasn't any legal precedent and there was like i said no statute in massachusetts that regarding this this issue so the judge really was kind of in all new territory he had no kind of older case to look back on and be like oh in this case they did this so we should do this it was totally new um so what do you guys think about the choice that the judge or that they made to go with just the judge instead of the jury um and also yeah i think that maybe they thought the jury would not have you know sympathy for her they would kind of you know not be on her side about it and maybe they were thinking because there is no law about this regarding the situation at all that the judge wouldn't have anything to go on and he would have to dismiss the case because there's no law surrounding it. Yeah, that's what I think too. I think they thought that the the judge would just, you know, it's their job to abide by the law and go by what the law says. And they thought that was probably a safer bet than going on, going with a jury who might be a more emotional about it and they it might be a harder a harder ask to get 12 people who are emotionally connected to it to get them to acquit her versus the opinion of one judge who might just be looking at whatever laws are in place so the trial was actually going on for quite a while and like i said it was kind of high profile everyone was kind of keeping their eye on it because no one really knew which way it was going to go um the prosecution of course argued that if it were not for her being there in that moment not only did she coax him to get back into the truck when he was having second thoughts but she also did nothing to alert the authorities or alert his family or anything so there were so many things that she did wrong that night um, according to the prosecution and like I said I brought up some of the points that the defense was trying to make um, and they were just banking on the fact this was such a new case that they were hoping that the judge would be lenient and would decide to acquit her Eventually, the judge does come to a decision, and he he does say that she is guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Obviously, the families were very happy that she was found guilty, but they weren't really sure about what the, sen- the ultimate sentence was going to be. And the judge did sentence her to 15 months in prison, was her final sentence that she was given. And 15 months, that's not a long time at all. Um, so... I think the families were very devastated that she was only going to be spending 15 months behind bars for effectively killing their 
their son and their brother and their their nephew and all that stuff um in their minds that she was 100 guilty and they thought that she should have been way given a way harsher sentence um the because it was an involuntary manslaughter charge she could have been sentenced for up to 20 years like that was the maximum um so the judge when you look at considering that it's very lenient charge and also what was unique was they allowed her to remain out of prison um and they allowed her to remain free during the appeals process and the appeals process actually took a couple of years from the time that the initial sentence happened to when then they tried to go through all these appeals to get the sentence revoked or to get the verdict changed um but she wasn't in jail for any of that time so she actually didn't even go to jail until a couple of years after that it wasn't until january of 2020 when she was released from jail um after she went into jail in 2019 um so that's interesting i've never really heard too much of that i don't know if that's a common thing or not but i just found it interesting that like she was obviously i'm sure she had some restrictions and stuff but she wasn't actually in prison for those two like two years that she was doing the appeals process yeah i never heard of that either um i'm assuming she was like monitored and like tracked while she was out of jail because i couldn't see them just letting her be free because if she was a risk of committing suicide she could have just committed suicide and then nothing would have come of that so i yeah that does seem weird to me that they would let her go and be sort of free until the trial happened it's weird um yeah maybe they thought she wasn't likely to hurt anyone else or reoffend because it's such a unique crime um but it doesn't seem like 15 months is long enough for this crime i don't know what would be long enough but i i just i don't agree with 15 months yeah like this yeah i was actually gonna say that too like i don't think 15 months was long enough maybe like i don't know if 20 might have been too long but like i think maybe five ten years would have been ideal like i think 15 months is just just so small of a time for what crime she actually committed yeah i agree like when you look at what it could have been 20 years like 15 months seems like so minuscule i'm sure there are some people who are surprised that she was even found guilty so a lot of them think that the 15 months is too much because in their opinion that they don't think that she should be guilty because she wasn't there she didn't hold a gun to his head you know they don't think that she really had any involvement and they think that it was probably going to happen anyway and her talking to him or her involvement had really no telling on the actual outcome of the case um his family of course was not happy with the verdict they thought that 15 months was way too too lenient and yes they did get a conviction in the end but really what is 15 months you know she was so young at the time you know she was 17 when it happened by the time she actually goes into prison she's you know five years later she's like 21 22 so she's so young when she gets even out of prison but i don't know i feel like it's just so unique and it's such a gray area that i don't really know how i feel about it because there's not like i said there's no other cases to really compare it to yeah it's like when you think of i mean is it a crime for someone to ask you for help and you don't help them and then they die like if you want to use like two people on a bridge metaphor again there's two people standing on a bridge one person slips but it's still holding on and they reach out their hand ask for help and the other person just ignores them and then they lose their grip and they fall in the water and die is that a crime maybe some places it is maybe some it isn't but i mean it's it's this gray area of like you know if you can help someone save their life then you probably should yeah it's interesting yeah i feel like it's probably it's probably considered negligence like if you don't do anything and you know somebody's in real danger and you don't do anything i feel like that would be negligence would it not i don't really know like i'm not i know the legal terms but to me it's negligence which i feel like is a crime in lots of situations 
Yeah, it kind of goes back to like, I'm not sure like where this is a law, but you can, it's like assisting someone to die. Like there is like, you can, um, like in Nova Scotia, there is an actual uh, piece of documentation that says like, if somebody is in their deathbed and they are willing to die, then you, whoever they oppose, whoever they give that power to that person, that person has a decision to set them free, so, so to speak. So I don't know if that's in Florida or, or Massachusetts, I mean, sorry, if that's a law, but I know here, like, it's not illegal to assist somebody in their death. Well, yeah, like assisted suicide and euthanasia, like that's a debate that will go on. And obviously I'm for euthanasia, like I've always been for euthanasia. So I guess in, in her mind, I guess she was assisting him in committing suicide. So, I mean, obviously she stretched the limits there a little bit and kind of did what she wanted with them. But I guess in her mind, it was justified. Yeah, I mean, euthanasia, I think, is like reserved for people that are, you know, on their deathbed and deathly ill and are in a lot of pain that isn't going to get better. And so I think that, yeah, that's, it's definitely a stretch for this to be considered that. Yeah, so maybe some people would agree that because he wanted to die, that, that it was a humane thing to do to let him die. But I mean, he had so much potential. He wasn't at the end of his life. He wasn't sick from a disease like cancer it was a mental illness that i know is as serious but there's ways to cope and even get better so yeah i don't think it should be lumped in with euthanasia so like i said very interesting case and just wanted to to do this one because i knew that it would have good discussion with it and it would be kind of a unique one um you know it's very different than anything else that we're gonna probably uh any other case that we're gonna be talking about but yeah, it's really, really sad story. And ultimately, there is no winner, you know, whatever her sentence was, win or lose, you know, guilty or not guilty. We have an 18 year old who committed suicide and died way too young. And at the time of this recording, you know, he would have been 25 years old. Uh, and who knows uh, what he could have been doing now. So it is very, very sad. Um, so I do just want to acknowledge that this case and this episode was very heavy in subject matter um and if you or anyone you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or anything like that uh you can reach out to the canadian suicide prevention hotline it's 833-456-4566 you can also text start to 741741 and there is also kids help phone um you can call them at 1-800-668-6868 or you can text them at any time, 686868. We thank you so much for listening in on this episode. Um, if you are a fan of the podcast, make sure that you subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming app so that you're notified whenever there's a new episode. You can follow us on Instagram at Crime Family Podcast or also on Twitter at Crime Family Pod One. And uh, we'll be back next week, next Wednesday, with a brand new episode. Our amazing music throughout the episode is done by Tim Monis. You can follow him on Instagram at Tim Monis. He's amazing. Uh, We thank you so much, and we'll see you guys all next time.